Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the blessing of this Lord's Day, for this beautiful morning, for a day in which Your people may gather together to worship You as we look to continue to study Your Word and the means of grace that You have given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, just as a quick recap, yes. Yes, so canon, uh, the word canon comes from the Greek word that would be translated rule. And, uh, and we uh, use that word as rule or standard, you might say. And that has historically been used uh, by uh, theologians to refer to as the rule or standard that is of God's complete Word And so a canon of Scripture as we use it, and it's not, of course, new to us, as it has been traditionally been used, is the full and complete uh, compiling of the Word of God. So the canon of Scripture is, uh, as our confession says, uh, the canon of Scripture is Genesis to Malachi within what we call the Old Testament, and Matthew to Revelation in what we call the New Testament or the New Testament canon and the Old Testament canon. So that is uh, what the canon, what a canon is, at least as we use it as Christians. All right, so last week uh, we looked at the third peg, the third, uh, what was the word, leg, the third leg of that stool that I had referenced before, uh, again, uh, the, the, the leg of that, that stool on how the church, how we, or rather how we as Christians understand the Word of God. And I, I, I need to reiterate because a number of people have said they really appreciate this distinction. Um, this is not a class on apologetics, nor am I talking about how you talk to an unbeliever about what Scripture is and what Scripture is not. That's not what we're talking about. And our confession... The Westminster Confession does not go there either. What we're talking about is how Christians, how we understand by virtue of the indwelled Holy Spirit within us, how we understand the Word of God. And that three-legged stool uh, is, of course, divine qualities, is apostolic and prophetic origin, and what we looked at last week as church reception and church recognition of that, of that canon. So we've already looked at this, and so you're familiar with this. And last week, and we were looking at the church recognition or church reception, what we saw is that, in fact, within the New Testament era, the apostles received the Old Testament canon as the Word of God. Uh, Jesus referred to the Old Testament canon as the Word of God. In fact, Jesus used the traditional uh, nomenclature of the books of Moses to refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, which has been the traditional way to refer to it. Uh, we also looked at canonical inferences. You may refer, may remember that in essence what, what we saw there is that there are inferences within the canon, specifically the New Testament canon, in which Peter will say, well, Paul's writing Scripture. Or Paul will say, well, I'm delivering to you uh, the, the inscripturated Word of God. Or John may say, I'm delivering this to you as God's Word. We also saw last week that the typical practice within uh, the New Testament era drawing from 
the Old Testament practice, uh, certainly in the time of, of Jesus' life, where there would be a public reading of Scripture. We see that when Jesus visited his hometown uh, and was not well regarded, you may recall, when he read at the synagogue. But it was a public reading of Scripture. We see that synagogue practice carried over into the New Testament church, and the, the public reading of Scripture uh, was uh, not only uh, done, but also uh, directed and in fact commanded uh, by Paul in writing to Timothy. And then finally, the testimony of the church fathers and writings. Uh, That is that the church fathers received the uh, Word of God as they recognized it, and we see the testimony of that throughout uh, the early period or what we might call the patristic period. Now, With that being said, um, I believe, and she's not here today, but I believe several weeks ago, uh, Hilda had asked, well, what about the Apocrypha? Uh, What do we believe about the Apocrypha? And so what we're going to do today uh, is we are going to look at, from from a negative standpoint, what we do not include in our canon. Um, To be clear on any of these subjects, I could spend a lot more time going through this, and and I'm not. I'm going to include it in one study today. If you want to research this in greater detail, uh, you can contact me, and I'll give you some resources to dig deeper. Uh, So I'm going to, as I say, I'm going to be flying at about 30,000 foot level here as we look at this, but it's important for us to understand what uh, we acknowledge, what we recognize as Scripture, and what we do not. When you hear the term apocrypha, uh, you may recall, in fact, I would imagine some of you who may have older Bibles uh, or older older Bibles that uh, may have been handed down uh, from uh, grandparents or or parents or something like that, or if you were, uh, for example, an, an Anglican. Uh, or another denomination uh, in which uh, the, bi- the Apocrypha would have been included, um, where typically in our printed Bibles, at least within the last, um, well, since at least the 16, 1700s, um, where would, quote-unquote, the Apocrypha be in a printed Bible? Right after Malachi. That's right. And again, I know some of you probably have these, these older Bibles, especially the King James uh, Version Bible, in, in which you, you would have the Old Testament, you would have the Apocrypha in the middle, you would have the New Testament uh, to follow. And that was a pretty uh, traditional practice uh, for quite a while. That may be for some of you who, have, who have, have grown up within the modern American evangelical age, that may sound foreign, uh, but it wouldn't have been foreign uh, to many of our, our ancestors. And the Apocrypha, as that is referenced, in other words, that compilation of books that's placed in many printed Bibles between uh, the Old Testament and the New, refers to a collection of ancient books written between 200 B.C. and and A.D. 400, roughly within that period of time. Uh, Today, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodox Church include some or all of the same text within their version of the Old Testament, and they will refer to it as, if I can spell it right, the, I guess I can't, Deuter, 
Can you pronounce that for me? De Deuterocanonical. How about that? And if that's wrong, I, I, somebody will correct me uh, via the, the, the video, right? Uh, Deuterocanonical. In other words, it's an acknowledgement of the worthiness of the compilation, but there's always a distinction. Um, Jerome, in, who, who translated uh, the Bible into Latin, which for years, if you know anything about your medieval Christian history, you know was the standard Bible of the church for hundreds of years. Um, Jerome, uh, in fact, uh, was very cautious. Even though he translated the books, he was very cautious to make sure that they were set apart, that they were distinct, that they were, were different than what we understand uh, to be Scripture. The following books, this may be memory lane for some of you, uh, especially if you grew up Episcopalian, uh, or even in some cases some of the other denominations, uh, but in the 1611 version of the King James Version, that's when the King James Version was translated, 1611, but also preceding that, a far more controversial translation was the Geneva Bible. Um, some of you may be familiar with the history of that. That, that. that might have been the most hated Bible in the English language at one point uh, because nobody agreed on it. Uh, the the uh, high church Anglicans didn't like it and the Puritans didn't like it. And, and so when the King James Version came around in 1611, uh, there were, in a sense, some who, who breathed a sigh of relief. But in both of those translations, you would have had first and second uh, I hope I pronounced this right, Esdras, Tobit, Judith, rest of Easter, or rather of Esther, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, also known as Sirach, Baruch, and the Epistle of Jeremy, Song of the Three Children, Story of Susanna, the Idol Bell and the Dragon, Prayer of Manasseh, and First and Second Maccabees. Again, some of you are like, yeah, I remember those. Maybe I remember from my childhood. And the first time that I read the Apocrypha was in college, took it as a literary course, and um, this is how much I remember about it. So what do we believe about the Apocrypha? Now, there's probably a few things still straggling back there. Um, but what do, you, what do we believe about those books that have traditionally been included in printed compilations of the Scripture and acknowledged by some? Here's what we believe straight from our confession. And this is what I was telling uh, Hilda when she was asking about it a couple of weeks ago. I said, the, our confession, what we believe, what we say is our standard of doctrine is not silent on this issue. Chapter 1.3 the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being a divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Now, if you work through the confession uh, definition there backwards... Uh, which I think is actually helpful for some. Um, what they're not saying is, beware the Apocrypha, it drips of satanic poison. That's not what they said, and it doesn't. Um, what they said was, is that you should treat the Apocrypha like you would any other human writing. That's the distinction that they, that they make there. Uh, in, in other words, uh, it's not the boogeyman. Um, there is some benefit to reading it if you enjoy literature, if you find uh, histo history 
and history, in some cases, uh, historical fantasy uh, to be of, of interest. Uh, if you are a student of ancient literature and you just really have a hankering, um, go for it. It's brilliant, but it's not Scripture. It has no divine authority. It does not have authority within the church, nor does it have authority over us as Christians. That's what we believe and state in our confession. And there are a number of reasons. If, if you were to say, well, what are the top ten reasons why uh, we don't uh, use the Apocrypha as the Word of God? Um, I, I, we could probably do more than ten. I just listed three in my notes um, the first is that the Jews did not acknowledge the books as of divine authority. Even prior to Christ's coming and then even after an acknowledgement uh, by Israel uh, of those books, they were never included within what we call the Old Testament or what was their scripture. Number two, the books were not written during a period of prophetic revelation. Um, this is of some debate, uh, but for those of us who believe that there were uh, prophetic eras in, in which the Holy Spirit moved in a unique way, and then there were other periods where that ceased, uh, we would have, uh, we, our understanding as uh, what you would call cessationists, uh, we believe that period has ceased. Uh, and uh, no more Scripture is given, nor miraculous gifts given, because the two coincide together. Uh, and so we would argue that the books were not written during a period of prophetic revelation. God was not issuing forth His prophetic word during those periods. And then thirdly, the books are not quoted by Christ or included in the New Testament. Now, some of you who are astute readers or students of the Bible, uh, you'll say, uh, 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 Jude. And, and, and Jude possibly makes an, a reference or inference to one of the books in the Apocrypha. But the Apostle Paul quotes a pagan poet in his sermons. In other words, in Paul quoting a pagan poet doesn't make us go, oh, that pagan poet, that, that poetry is God's Word. No, we understand that as God... Uh, gives, and God gives abundantly to His people. He gives poetry. That poetry is written. Paul borrows it. He uses it. And as he uses it, then it becomes the Word of God, not vice versa. And the same would be true if, in fact, the reference in Jude is to the Apocrypha. That's debatable. So, where does that lead us today? Well, where I really wanted to, to get to was the topic of the closing of the canon, the closing of the canon, the canon of Scripture, meaning that after we receive the last book of apostolic origin, the canon closed. So what in the early... Let's just make one real quick assumption. So let's assume that the Old Testament that we have was in fact understood and closed in the, in the apostolic period. And so Jesus and the apostles would have <clears throat> been able to say that, that is the Word of God and that is understood by us to be the Word of God and that, that canon is, is closed. Or we would say in our vernacular, the Old Testament is closed. And that was in fact the case. They did in fact recognize 
as did the early church, there was really no real debate about what was and was not Old Testament, Old Testament Scripture. So that leads us to the New Testament books. And how did, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but how did the early church recognize and then receive the books of the New Testament? And <clears throat> I'm going I'm to take a lot of scholarship here, and I'm not of me, but of scholars who have done the, the heavy lifting, and, and I'm going to just abbreviate it down to this. Again, if, if, if this really intrigues you, there's far, far more to research than here. But this is roughly how the New Testament Scripture was recognized and received by the church. First of all, the first four Gospels. The first four Gospels, as, as we look back, as scholars have studied this, it appears that the first four Gospels were the first recognized. And I, you may recall that I, I, I referenced that most scholars believe that the, the first of the Gospels was Mark. Now there are some scholars, just to chase this rabbit briefly, there are some scholars that, that push back against that and, and they say, no, it was actually Q. Um, so anybody heard this argument before, before I dive into it? Okay. So, well, that's good. So no one has. So some scholars say, well, Mark could have been the, the origin uh, or base for the other synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Um, but there's also the argument that there were other texts or an other text which would, ha would have been understood by the apostles and drawn from. And so some scholars will use that by using the word Q just simply to say something different than the name of a book. Whether that's the case or not is irrelevant because once we get to Mark, let's just to say that for, for the sake uh, of argument that it was Q to Mark or Mark, then moving on to the Synoptic Gospels, we're probably looking at a progression in this way and the divergent of John. John was probably... Uh, but, but not 100% certainty, the last of the Gospels written uh, were it not uh, Luke. The next book that was received by the church, recognized by the church and received was the book of Acts, to be followed by the Pauline apostles and um, epistles. And I might add, this is fascinating for those of us who are curious about who the writer of Hebrews was, um, when the Pauline epistles were received, they were received with Hebrews, which is why traditionally, uh, if you have an older Bible, if you have a King James Bible, for example, um, and you look on it, it will refer to Hebrews as an epistle of Paul. And, and, and that's why, is because all of the, the Pauline epistles and Hebrews was including with that. And as I have already admitted, uh, I think Paul was the author of Hebrews too, while many, 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 many people smarter than I disagree. All right, so then secondly, following the Pauline epistles was 1 John, 1 Peter, and Revelation. And so within <clears throat> that early period of the church, those were the books that would have been understood and recognized by the church. The Gospels, Acts, Pauline Epistles, plus Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelation. Boom! That's your canon. You'll note that I left some books out. And so then, following that, there were other books that were, quote-unquote, disputed. Uh, they were the book of James, 
And let me pause here in just a second. I know many people, because I've already been told this a number of times since I started this study, I know a lot of you are familiar with Luther's not liking. Luther didn't like James, okay? This is so far before Luther. Let Luther go. It's irrelevant. I don't care if Luther didn't like James. I love it. All right? You say, well, you're not Luther. You're right. But that's irrelevant. These early disputed books were James, Jude, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John. And <clears throat> there are a number of reasons for uh, the, them being disputed. Uh, some had to do with controversy in the church on whether or not it was truly written by the apostles. So, for example, uh, 2 Peter uh, became a disputed book because there were some uh, that said, well, we don't, we don't think that, that, that the Apostle Peter really wrote that, and there was a pushback, and yet later evidence came along showing that it was and was received. Uh, the same thing with Second and Third John. Um, the last book, this is just uh, Bible trivia on Sunday morning, April 30th. Does anyone know the last book, supposedly, the last book that was recognized and received by the church? Jude. Yeah, Jude was, was the last one to be recognized and to be received. Now, once they were recognized and received, though, as I said last week, in terms of church recognition and reception, early on, well before, for example, some will point and say, well, you know, really it was, it was Augustine uh, writing in the 5th century who really recognized that. No, as we studied last week, well before Augustine in the 5th century, the church fathers were saying, this is the canon, this is the canon, this is the canon, and it contained exactly the same New Testament books that we have. Think on that for a minute. That's extraordinary to be saying that over 2,000 years later. But there were books that were rejected. And the books that were rejected were generally orthodox, but not recognized and received as Scripture. And so let me make this distinction so nobody hears me wrongly. In the early church, there were New Testament books in which they said, that may be orthodox, but we don't believe that is apostolic. Ergo, not Scripture. There were also books that were not orthodox, easily rejected, and the ones that many liberals today just have a fancy for. We'll talk about that in, in just a second. Here are the books that were considered orthodox and, in fact, uh, acknowledged that they were orthodox but not recognized nor received by the church as Scripture. The Acts of Paul, presumably written by Paul, not written by Paul. Shepherd of Hermas, Apocalypse of Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, which I quoted, I mentioned last week, the Didache was a brilliant book. It was really an early church discipleship manual, but it was not of uh, apostolic origin. And the Gospel of Hebrews, not to be confused with the Epistle to the Hebrews, rather called the Gospel of Hebrews. So each of those books, scholars tell us that they were Orthodox, are Orthodox, uh, in their writings, but they are not and were not and are not today understood as Scripture. There were unorthodox books. In fact, they were understood quite early as heretical. 
And some of these books, you're gonna, it's laughable. None of you, I would imagine, had heard of these other books that I just quoted that are rejected yet orthodox books. The following books, I bet most of you have heard of at least one of them. The Gospel of Peter. The Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Matthias. Acts of Andrew. Acts of John. A number of years ago, if you were paying attention, the Gospel of Thomas got all the pub. Everybody was talking about the, oh my gosh, do you know they have discovered another John. They've discovered another Gospel. Here it goes, getting ready to have five of them. Said no one in the first several centuries of the church they already knew about the gospel of Thomas. They already knew it was heretical. They already knew it was unorthodox. They already knew that it was rejected from the canon of Scripture. So silly are our liberal scholars today that just have a fancy for these books. And I, I personally think they have a fancy for them because they are heretical. All right. So, with that being said, in this 27 books that we refer to as our New Testament canon, how were they recognized, how they were received? I know we touched on this briefly last week. I'm just going to go through this very quickly. First of all, in 367, we have in writing Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, writing and saying basically what we would say, Matthew through Revelation canon. He lists all of the books. Eusebius, another church father, also recognized the books. One of the early codexes, a codex of Claremonanatatananananananananus, something like that. I'm not even going to spell it for you. I don't even know how to pronounce it, but it starts with a C. Looks a lot like Claire. O, Mon, A, Tanus, Tanus. There you go. That codex referred to the early New Testament books. Rufinus, Jerome, Augustine, the African canons that came following Augustine, and the synods of Hippo and Carthage, two of the early church councils that met, said, yep, Matthew through Revelation, Gospel of Thomas, this is the New Testament canon. And so it was understood uh, early, we would say, not early to us in a microwave generation, but early if you study history, within church history, that the canon was recognized, received, and compiled. So, yes, John? Hmm. That's a great question. That did not come until much later. Yeah, John's question was, was there any, any discussion over the order in which they were received and, and so forth? It, it's sort of like, and I've told you this before, but if, if you weren't here and you, you, you missed it. So, chapter breaks and verses are much, much, double much, quadruple much later. Uh, so, when cause somebody will say... <laughs> I just, this is sort of funny. I had a, a young lady come to me uh, one time, this is probably seven or eight years ago, and she's like, <laughs> Pastor John, there is no John 3.16a. Meaning, it's just verse 16, because that's the Word of God. There's no 16a. And to which my response was, there's no verse 16 in the original autographs. 
and even in our uh, and even in our manuscripts that have survived. So the the chapters and the verses, all of that was added later. Interestingly enough, and I I don't have notes on this, so I'm not going to go into it in greater detail. But there are some varieties. Some of you have probably figured this out in using uh, different Bibles in different languages. Uh, for example, I have a, a French Bible uh, that I will occasionally attempt to read, and it uh, in certain cases the verse verses differ than our verses, and it, it will uh, change. But we see a standardization of that in printing uh, within, I believe it was after the, at least by the 1700s. No, it had to have been after uh, the King James Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So we see a standardization. Yes. Yeah. So no one, and there were no men that got together. So if you go back to our, my study last week, what we see is that the New Testament canon was recognized by virtue of the Holy Spirit as the church at large. And then they were received by the church at large uh, as Scripture long before any men got together or councils were held. Now that will, as I talk, taught last week, that will differ significantly from Roman Catholic tradition who says that it wasn't recognized as Scripture until those councils met. But again, that goes back to my first study. When I began the study at large, we as Protestants have a very, very different view of Scripture than Roman Catholics. They believe the church is in authority over Scripture. We believe the, church, the Scripture is in authority over the church. So that's a, that's a big distinction to make. And so to, to your question, um, there, there, there weren't any. I mean, there were, obviously, councils met, but by the time those councils met, the church was already using the full and complete canon of Scripture. So, all right, so why is this important? Why is it important today? And why have I spent, however long it was, I think four weeks, why have I spent four weeks teaching on the canon of Scripture and what we believe as Protestants? Why do you need to know this? All right. Well, here goes. First of all, why is a closed canon important? Because books cannot be added or taken away. Like that, that, that's, that's almost good enough just in itself. Is you don't have, somebody says, oh, 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 but what? There was an archaeological find, and they found the gospel of John Clayton. It's there. It's Scripture. And as much as I would think, want to believe that... It's false. There's nothing else coming, nothing to be added to Scripture. So that you think about this just in the world in which we live. Um, texts such as the Book of Mormon are not recognized as part of our canon. And, and it, pause there for just a second. If you think about how reckless that is, is that if you open the door to saying, okay, there was a drunk weirdo who saw an angel in the forest and wrote Scripture, ergo, we must include it because he said that he saw the angel Moroni, ergo, it must be Scripture. If you do that, then what's going to happen? I, my ABC worksheet in kindergarten, I could say that's Scripture. 
You see, in the day and age which we live, especially in the age in which we live where all of a sudden a, a, a man says, woke up today feeling like a woman, so I'm a woman today, or yesterday I felt like a woman, but now I'm, I, I was a woman, but now I'm a man. All of this sort of thing, you can see how that can insidiously crawl its way into what we understand to be Scripture. And if Scripture is not authoritative in itself, then we run into all kinds of problems. The Book of Mormon, as silly as it is, is but a look into how far things can go off the tracks. We, we do not recognize the Book of Mormon. Remember the, the, the three uh, legs to the stool? Right there. We don't recognize the Book of Mormon based on divine qualities. The church looked at the Book of Mormon and went, and I'm, I, this is a technical term, <laughs> not Scripture. The, 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 the church looked at the Book of Mormon and said, of apostolic origin. Oh, wait, apostolic origin closed with presumably the death of John. Way, way too late. Book of Mormon. And then thirdly, recognition and reception by the church. The church has consistently across the board, Eastern and Western churches, rejected the Book of Mormon as Scripture. So we see how those three legs are important. We may know, secondly, we may know that those who supposedly have a, and this is this would have never been, been known in prior generations, but certainly within the last two years. When somebody comes to me and says, John, I have a word from the Lord for you. As, as a friend of mine says, when somebody says that, they better be quoting chapter and verse. Because otherwise, they don't have a word from the Lord. They may have a word from a demon, but they don't have a word from the Lord. Thirdly, we may trust that what has been preserved over time is the complete canon. Uh, again, based on those three legs of divine quality, prophetic and apostolic origin, church recognition, we understand the importance and uh, the validation within uh, Christianity of that closed canon. Uh, for example, and this is one of the ones that Michael Kruger gives, he says, we may assume that Paul wrote many letters over the course of his ministry, but most of them were not preserved, showing it was not God's will for them to be included in the canon. And then he says, see 2 Corinthians 7, 8 for a possible reference to a non-canonical letter. Uh, in other words, what Kruger's getting at is, is that uh, we may assume that there were a number of letters that Paul wrote, but... By God's sovereign plan and purpose, He brought together just those letters that were, in fact, the inscripturated Word of God. Fourthly, what we have, I mean, rather, what we need, we already have. What we need, we already have. And that's typically the second thing that I say to someone who says, I have a word from the Lord. After I say, what's the chapter and verse, then I secondly say, don't need it. Everything that I need, I have been given in the Word of God. For example, in Jude, one of the last books included in the canon, he writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once 
for all, delivered to the saints. And as he uses word, the word faith here, we understand that he's not talking about that I have faith in Christ. In, that, in this sense, he's using it to refer to Christianity. Christianity as the faith and what we believed. And it was past tense. It has been delivered. It's been delivered to us by the prophets. It's been delivered to us by the apostles. So if you believe that the canon is open, then you believe that the canon is incomplete. And that means that you're always going to be looking for something new, a new revelation, a new word from God. Um, And yet, that is a fool's errand. A closed canon doesn't mean, however, and let me make this clear, a closed canon doesn't mean that God doesn't continue to work in the lives of His people. But it does mean that no new special revelation will be given. And how God works is in accordance with what He has revealed in His Word. And In other words, if someone comes to me and they say, you know, this is the truth of God and it contradicts Scripture, then I have the foundation of Scripture to stand upon. And I can say, I know for a fact that that's not true. I know for a fact that you're lying because... Here's what Scripture says. I have the foundation of Scripture. And the late R.C. Sproul uh, spent really a good portion of of his ministry. He didn't emphasize it as much in his later years, but certainly in the the, uh, the 80s and 90s, uh, Sproul really spent a lot of time emphasizing the importance of the foundation of Scripture. That if we don't have a solid foundation of God's revealed will, then... Well, we'll go in all sorts of directions. And so whenever we have a question in regards to uh, a serious theological matter, a serious aspect of our salvation and the rule of life, uh, we are to go directly to Scripture. It's, it's that important. In Scripture, God has revealed what we are to know about Him, about ourselves, how we are to live unto the end Or I love the way the Westminster Confession puts this. Chapter 1, point 2. Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And then the Confession goes on to say, In point six, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced by good and necessary consequence may be deduced in Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. And again, the, the point the confession is, is making there is that in addition to the fact there is no new Scripture, we have everything that we need for understanding salvation, faith, life, and God's glory 
is specified or is derived by good and necessary consequence. In other words, it means that we look at Scripture and we deduce the truth from that in difficult areas. Well, I'm out of time. That concludes our study on the canon. Next week, then, we're going to continue on the topic of the Word of God, but I've got something new for you next week. So let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. And it is on Your Word that we assemble across the street in worship of You. We look to Your Word as we sing. We look to Your Word to guide our prayers. We look to Your Word to be read to us and to be preached to us. And all of this we acknowledge is by Your divine special revelation. We thank You for a complete canon of Scripture. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.